Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Think with me for a moment about your name. What does your name say about you? It's commonly observed that usually Western names don't mean much of anything. We choose our children's names because they sound good to us or because they're in the family. I'm named Jason because of a certain movie franchise in the 1970s involving hockey masks. I'm not proud of that fact. The name Jennifer was popular around the same time, also because of a movie. In the 1990s, the name Madison became popular for a girl for the same reason. It says something about us that we choose names because of movies. Now, it's commonly noticed that Asian and African and indigenous names tend to tell a story. Friends of mine from Ghana, you can tell which day of the week they were born with their first name. There's a story there in the name. When I was with my Tuesday Bible study, I asked them, what does your name say about you? And I was actually impressed. The names didn't say nothing about themselves. Sometimes it was a name that was a popular one in a previous decade or belonged to a favorite and so our names do say something, don't they? What about God? What's God's name? And what does that name tell us about God's character? The story you just heard is so important and read so beautifully, it's tempting just to listen to it and then sit down. Think of the phrases that sear into our imagination from that chapter. The bush on fire, but not consumes. Take off your shoes, holy ground. I am that I am. To try and say much about them is almost a desecration, so here goes nothing. Moses has settled into his new life after fleeing from Egypt. He's married the daughter of a priest of Midian, that is, another race of people and another religion besides the Israelites. He's been a shepherd for some 40 years, and there's no sign he's even thinking about his enslaved brethren back in Egypt. He's not even looking for God. It's just an ordinary, regular workday for him, which has to make you wonder what can happen to you or me on an ordinary day. Moses is doing whatever shepherds do all day, and he looks and sees. The text goes on about this. Moses' attentiveness, his curiosity. Listen for all the words about seeing in verse 4. Moses' words, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Now, it's not really all that great a sight. It's just a shrub on fire. Things do catch on fire 
in the desert. It's not exactly the parting of the Red Sea. It's a modest, humble little miracle. The rabbis say that Moses' attentiveness is everything. If Moses hadn't turned and looked and seen and paid attention, it wouldn't have happened. No burning bush, no freedom for Israel. Some say nature is always a light with God. It's just that most of us don't notice most of the time. On page 10 in your order of service, you have a line from the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning about this. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit round and pluck blackberries. Another rabbi suggests every single blade of grass has an angel stooped beside it, pleading, grow, grow. If we all notice the glory in every ounce of creation, we'd be stupefied all the time. We'd be staring at common shrubs and blades of grass, amazed. We'd never get anything done. We'd look like idiots to everyone who sees us. And that's not even to mention the most beautiful thing God's ever made, people. Thomas Merton once had an experience like Moses's. He even gives the address. It's also on your page 10. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, and the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation. This sense of liberty from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy to me, I almost laughed out loud. I have the intense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. If only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. People's faces are godlike. If only we stopped and noticed that. So Moses sees creation correctly in all its fullness, and he hears a voice, here I am. He takes off his shoes, come no closer. The fire is significant. It's a common image for God in the Bible and elsewhere. Fire is beautiful, mesmerizing. Get me in front of a fire and I'll just stare at it for hours. Fire is life. It's heat and warmth and cooking Cultures pass their, fire, their stories down around the fire. Peoples put images of their gods or their ancestors on the hearth. I, I bet you have images of your ancestors on your hearth. Fire is also dangerous. It takes life in addition to giving it. You see why it's such a good image for God. The bush is a good image for the church. Modest, humble thing except for the presence of God that gives life instead of death. The Presbyterian Church in Canada has as its motto the line from this story, 
yet it was not destroyed. Christians have long seen in this burning bush an image for the Virgin Mary. Now, bear with me if this is strange. It took me a few decades to agree with it, and you've had it for a few seconds. But here's how it goes. In the same way that the bush is filled with the fiery presence of God, but not destroyed, so Mary is filled with the fiery presence of God, but not destroyed. Taking off shoes, like a guest to a home in the Canadian prairie, We all tend to wear uncomfortable shoes for Sunday morning, don't we? Some women's shoes look like some kind of torture device to me. Why do you all do that to yourselves? My wife, Jaylin, finally got me a proper pair of shoes now that I have a grown-up job here at this church. You can check them out later if you want. Our shoes tell us something about ourselves, and they tell us something socioeconomic, don't they? They give economic information. Well, shoes off in God's presence. No financial markers. We all have equally strange feet under there. The other thing with the shoes may be this. There's no sign of the death of an animal in the book of Genesis until after the fall. And then our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, are pitifully trying to cover themselves with leaves. God takes pity on them and gives them animal skins to wear. That's the first animal death, so they'll have some clothes. Moses' sandals are not synthetic leather like mine. They're actual animal skin. No death in God's presence. Take off those signs of death. There's a reason we all feel so good when we get to take our shoes off in nature, right? When you're at the beach on a warm day, when you're in the grass and it feels great, You're also in the presence of God, especially maybe if we don't realize it. Moses hides his face. It's an interesting gesture in God's presence. God doesn't tell him to do it. Moses just does it. I find that when I pray, I often also hide my face. Our face is who we are. It's personal, like our name. Whole philosophies have been written about the human face. Emmanuel Levinas, great Jewish philosopher, for example. And though he covers his face now, later, Moses will speak to God face to face. And being in God's presence will make Moses' face glow so brightly that people beg him to cover his face. They can't stand the glow coming off of it. When someone dies, it's my prayer for them that they would see God's face. And my favorite line in all the Christmas hymns that we just finished with is this, and the babe, the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. God is always personable, and then God becomes a person, born of Mary, with a face like ours, but also infinitely more beautiful than ours. All right, I've been pretty mystical with y'all this morning. Forgive me, can't help it. It's the story's fault. But God's appearance this morning is very much this worldly. God has let the people suffer in slavery for 400 years. That's a long time. Any idea what your people were up to 400 years ago? Year 1623? I got nothing. 
But God says this, and he's in a hurry now. I have observed. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down. I, 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 I. When we look for God or imagine God or see God in nature or in ourselves, that's sort of about our interior space. It's a romantic thing, a sentimental thing, not in this story. This story is about God summoning Moses when Moses isn't looking for God at all. We might even fault Moses for not giving a thought to his fellow Israelites in slavery back in Egypt. God hasn't forgotten. God has heard, and God will act. This is how you can know it's the true God and not some figment of your imagination. God always works to set people free. Christian faith has this in common with our Jewish and Muslim kin. In our faiths, God reveals who God is. We don't dig down deep to find God, discover God on the therapist's couch. Nope. God tears into history and tells us, hey, I'm this way. And so we listen and learn and obey. We call it revelation. Faith doesn't come from navel-gazing, imagining what God might be like, wishful thinking, baggage with our parents, none of that. It comes from listening. God speaks and reveals who God is. There's a 10-cent word to describe stories like this. It's theophany. Theos for God, phaneo for manifestation. The God of the Bible tells us what God is like. We're not at a tragic lack of information about God because God has shared God's identity. I like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' description of Judaism. Here's what Judaism says. The only God there is intervenes in history personally to free slaves. Jews didn't think that up. God thought that up and told them that's who God is and that's what would happen. There's more here. The land God promises flows with milk and honey, two maternal images. Normally, milk and honey are hard to get. They're precious. They require animal husbandry and avoiding bees, and they're difficult. In our world, things flow like rivers and creeks with water. Most of it you can't drink. God promises a land where milk and honey are like that rainwater in ours. I love this image for honey especially because it's the only food we know about that never goes bad. You can find it in an ancient Egyptian tomb and drink that stuff if, if you want. It's not only sweet, it's eternal. And that's how God moves people, from the lash to sweetness. That's God's way. And that will be God's way for every oppressed people, for North Koreans, for Uyghurs, for Latin Americans heading north, for Mediterranean people on boats, for indigenous people in this country until just a few short decades ago. Not an oppressed cry happens on this planet that God doesn't hear, and God will respond with freedom. 
So God says, off you go, Moses, that's the plan. But Moses has some questions. When God first appeared, Moses said, here I am. Now Moses says, who am I? (laughs) His whole tone has changed now that he knows the plan. Eight different ways Moses objects to God's idea for him to go to Pharaoh. God is very patient with our objections, with our hesitations, with our quandaries. In fact, God changes the plan a few times in response to Moses' objections. One objection is this, so who's sending me? When they ask who you are, what do I say? This is so much more interesting a question than whether someone believes in God. The more interesting question is, what sort of God are we talking about? Moses was curious with the burning bush, turning aside to see. Now he's curious with God. Hook me up. What's your name? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Well, now we're in deep waters. What's this about? Another faithful translation from the Hebrew is, I will be who I will be. Now, this is not very revelatory in one way. Israel's neighbor's gods had proper names, Marduk and Ra and Zeus. This God says, I am, and and we're waiting for him to finish the rest of the sentence, but that's it apparently. Punct, sentence over. You are what? One way we've tried to understand this is that God is not just another being, like all the other beings God has created. God's not like a person or a table or a frisbee or a great horned frog. All of those things are creatures. God is being itself. Everything else receives being from God. Or we've put it this way. Your and my life is contingent. Wouldn't happen if our parents hadn't met. We receive life, we have it for just a moment, and we give it back. God's is the only life that's not contingent, that's necessarily being, that's not received from anywhere else or given away to anyone else. God just is. Now, don't let me fool you with any of that. Nobody understands what this means. All we can do with God is worship and adore, but not comprehend. Our Jewish siblings have some wisdom for us here. Another way God is named in the Bible is as Yahweh, or really Y-H-W-H, no vowels. The Hebrew language originally didn't have vowels at all, but when they developed vowels, scribes didn't put them in for God's name. You shouldn't try and say this name. It's not for us. And so we're going to keep it from having vowels. Jewish friends to this day won't say the name God in English. All they'll say when they come to the word God in the Bible is Hashem, the name. The name no one can say. Take off your shoes. We Christians do something similar. We call God Father because Jesus calls God Father. But it's a strange sort of father, not like any father we know. There's no mother involved. God the Father isn't older or more powerful than God the Son, Jesus Christ. So why do we call him Father? Because Jesus does. 
So we trust that good name and enter into it. Friends, here's the point. If you've ever felt you don't understand God, good. You're starting to understand. God has a name we cannot say and we cannot understand. We do trust that God loves and sets free. This I am has even more relevance for us Christians. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus won't say whether he's the Messiah or not. The only ones who know who Jesus is are the demons, and he shushes them angrily. Until his trial, when he's directly asked, are you the Christ, Son of the Most High? And he says, not yes, not no, but I am. That's what gets him killed, identifying himself with God. It's either blasphemy or it's true. In the Gospel of John, soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they ask him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, not yes, not no, but you guessed it, say it with me, I am. And they all fall to the ground, an appropriate response in God's presence. The way you and I speak, we would say, I am a Canadian, or I am a daughter, or I am an employee. I am is not a complete sentence for us. It needs an object, as your secondary school literature professor would tell you. Only God can use I am and have it be a complete sentence. God's name tag says, hello, my name is I am. God is the one who cannot not Lots of faiths understand God in abstract terms, omni this, all that, lots of hyphens and Greek words. That's fine. Religion and philosophy classes need something to do. But it's not how the Bible speaks of God, and so it's not how the church speaks of God. We speak of God by telling a story. God's character is rendered in narrative. God is the one who lights things on fire and sets people free. So someone may ask, okay, is God omni this or all that? And we might say, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Let me tell you the story again. I suppose God could have given us bullet points or data, sent down a spreadsheet. God does not. God's character comes to us in stories about modest things, like little shrubs and shoes Macro things like slavery and freedom and beautiful things like your face and my face and that one's face. So all that's a little heady. Thankfully, God promises Moses a sign as if a burning bush and a theophany and a name and a prophetic assignment were not enough. Okay, Moses must think, hit me with this sign. Later in Exodus, we'll see more signs. The parting of the Red Sea. Staff turned into a snake and then turned back into a staff. Gobs of plague. Signs are everywhere in the book of Exodus. God says, all right, here's your sign. When you free the Israelites, y'all will worship me on this mountain. Uh, that's not really that great a sign, God. In fact, that's a future sign. An IOU, a check is in the mail. You'll see, you guys will all worship me right here. It's not even a miracle. It's just a promise that there'll be a church service. 
again, learning from Jewish wisdom on this, in Judaism, every Jew there's ever been stands at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses is at the top of that mountain. All Jews living and dead and around the world are there, present tense, with the I am. That little burning bush will give way to a smoking, thundering mountain, and we'll all stand amazed. And then it happened later. (laughs) God makes promises that are hard to believe, flowing milk and honey. I've never seen it, have y'all? Freedom from slavery everywhere, every wound healed, the hungry fed, and all people overflowing with knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Here's your sign, God says, one day, one day, you'll see it's all true, every word. Bring that day quickly, Lord Jesus, amen.